They flash outside the off stump. Episode 17. War and Peace. In September 1939, as the air raid sirens sounded across Britain, Leary Constantine was 39 years old. Had the war not intervened, he might still have had a couple of years' professional cricket left in him. His performance on the 1939 West Indies tour shows that he was still more than capable of holding his own at the highest level. But there would be no more peacetime cricket until 1946, and he now had to find another role. When the world is free. Leary had already been preparing for post-cricket life. One of his Nelson teammates, Alec Britwell, was from a firm of solicitors and had offered him a job. Unfortunately, the uncertainty of imminent war had led work to dry up almost as soon as it had begun. As the war began, Constantine joined other volunteers in the town filling sandbags as well as helping the local council get together the equipment needed in the event of air raids. Leary also found paid employment for the council as a billeting officer. His job was to inspect local homes which might receive evacuees from the larger cities of the north and grade them according to their suitability. Having lived in Nelson for the last ten years, he was only too aware that many in the town were unemployed and that poverty was common. Now, for the first time, he stepped into some of their homes, and was taken aback at just how bad the deprivation was. You should see me out in France Wearing my tin hat Mid shot and shell It's worse than... Well, it's even worse than that As the war progressed and the disastrous attempts to turn back the Germans in France failed, the British government called up more and more civilians. Still under 40, just... Leary, too, received papers requesting his presence in Blackburn for his military medical. Just as he was about to go, he was instead recruited by the government to work for the Ministry of Labour. I can't pretend to be a great celebrity, but still I'm quite important in me way. The job I have to do may not sound much to you, but all the same I'm very proud to say. I'm the girl that makes the thing that thrills the hole that holds the ring that drives the rod that turns the knob that works the thing of me bob Thousands of British factory workers had volunteered or been called up into the services and some of the gap had been filled by new workers from the Caribbean. By the time he took up his new post in October 1941, there were around 20,000 of them, mainly concentrated in large port cities such as London, Liverpool and Cardiff. Leary was in charge of the welfare office set up to look after these men. This had a wide-ranging remit which included finding accommodation and training for the men, settling work disputes, helping the workers send money back home and generally assist with the many problems they faced. Many of the workers came from rural plantations and had little or no industrial experience. The cold and wet weather, smoky sprawling cities and heavily regulated working practices of the UK were an alien and uncomfortable environment to which some struggled to adapt. Additionally, they faced widespread hostility caused by racism, ignorance and fear. Arriving as a famous cricketer with a reputation for entertaining the crowds, Leary had by and large been welcomed. 
Initially seen as a novelty, he had won the hearts of many with his exploits both on and off the field. He was also perceived to be a man of status. He earned good money and lived in a nice house. In Nelson, where the majority of the townsfolk had strong Lancashire accents, Leary's received pronunciation and eloquence as a public speaker was frequently remarked on. He was seen as a solidly establishment figure. The ordinary West Indian worker was seen differently. Because they came in larger numbers and were poor, they were seen more of a threat than a curiosity. Some employers refused to take them on, others enforced segregation or offered lower wages, and worse conditions for black workers. Equally, some landlords would refuse to rent to them or fob them off with woefully substandard housing. Leary proved to be highly effective in his role. Well regarded and popular by West Indian and Englishmen alike, he was the ideal candidate to act as a go-between. He understood both cultures and was able to do much to address misunderstandings as they occurred. He also turned out to be a shrewd judge of human nature and a wily tactician. He realised, for example, that encouraging Caribbean workers to take up trade union membership would not only improve their lot, but undermine arguments that they were in Britain to undercut local wages. He was also able to get employers reluctant to hire black labour on side by pushing urgent government contracts at them so that they were forced to employ them to meet their orders on time. His welfare work was not the only thing keeping him busy during the war. He was still in demand as a public speaker, both in person and on the radio. He kept up an impressive round of evening engagements, giving talks to a wide range of charity and community bodies, and made broadcasts to the Caribbean, explaining what was happening in Britain. The BBC was sufficiently impressed with these broadcasts to give him a further series on the Home Service, in which he talked to British listeners about his life and experiences as well as a separate show in which he introduced listeners to the joyful sound of calypso music. Speaking in his calm and eloquent way, Leary introduced millions of British listeners to the history and culture of the West Indies. He also made them aware, often for the first time, of the discrimination non-white people faced in everyday life. His broadcasts were well received, and he soon found himself also invited to become a panellist on the Brains Trust, a wartime radio show in which experts answered the public's questions on a wide range of topics. Another of his roles involved lecturing service personnel on the backgrounds of their new colleagues from the Caribbean and the cultural differences they might encounter. This was especially relevant to the Royal Air Force, which attracted particularly high numbers of West Indian men to ground crew roles. In September 1943, he appeared in a short film, West Indies Calling, in which he outlined some of the roles people from the West Indies were filling as part of the war effort. And now let's leave the services for a few minutes and hear about West Indians in civilian jobs. I'm going to ask Larry Constantine, the world-famous cricketer, to tell us something about the factory front. Larry Constantine is now a welfare officer to the Ministry of Labour. Hello, everybody. This is Larry Constantine. It's a pleasure to speak to you. I feel as though I have played truant from the West Indies these past few winters. However, I would like to say a few words about the many hundreds of lads who have come over here in recent months to take up engineering. Here in a training centre in the north of England are 82 of them. People from all walks of life, including doctors, lawyers, reporters from the West Indies. They're being taught side by side with Englishmen and women 
to operate all the latest types of machinery. In 16 weeks, they must know how to read blueprints, micrometers, slide rules, to set up and operate lathes, capstans, drills, and grinders. When their training is complete, they will go to aircraft or ordnance factories or machine shops. There are also others from several West Indian islands who volunteered and were chosen for their skill. And on arrival, were immediately introduced into production in the united effort to beat Hitler and his gang. War is in the air, all West Indians will do their share. That is why they came, and not seeking glory or fame, they will fight. Fight for victory, let us raise a cheer, they will fight. Fight and never fear, victory is near. March, march, march to victory. March, march, march to victory. We fight, land, sea, and in the air, on to victory. March, march, march to victory. March, march, march to victory. We fight, on land, and sea, and in the air, on to victory. These men are gaining knowledge, not only in the wide field of engineering, but in the workings of the British trade union system. Also, they are getting together with English workers in the factories. And this will mean a lot during Reconstruction, after the war, when plans for a new era of life in the West Indies must be put into effect. March, march, march to victory. Fight for land and sea and in the air, on to victory. Remarkably, he even found time to play a little cricket. For the first two wartime seasons, he would turn out as a professional when he could for Windhill in the Bradford League. This was no longer practical once his welfare job was in full swing, as it was based in Liverpool. For the remainder of the war, he played local amateur cricket when time allowed, either in Liverpool or back in Nelson. There were still occasional higher-profile games, usually for charity. He played for a Liverpool league side against Yorkshire and then in a string of games at the major grounds which pitched various combinations of the Allied nations against England. These games featured many of the best players from the Empire and Commonwealth and were important morale boosters as well as providing much-needed funds for organisations such as the Red Cross. For a few short hours the crowds could throng into Lords, Old Trafford or the Oval and remember happier times. The games were popular, often with gates in excess of 10,000 with the 1943 England versus West Indies match drawing as many as 20,000 to Lords. It was while in London to play against England for a combined Dominions eleven that an incident occurred which was to have far-reaching consequences. Leary decided that it would be nice for Norma and Gloria to have a long weekend in the capital while he was playing, and booked the family into the Imperial Hotel in Russell Square for four nights. In his role as a welfare officer, he was only too aware that many hotels refused to admit non-white guests. He had often had to search hard to find accommodation for the men in his care, and had been refused accommodation himself in the past. Consequently, he was careful to explain that he was black when he made his reservation, so that he was sure his family would have somewhere to stay. The hotel assured him that his race was not a problem, and accepted a deposit of £2 for the booking. However, when the Constantines arrived at the hotel, a number of American army officers were in residence. Large parts of the United States were still strictly segregated at this time, as were the American services. 
the attitude of some white Americans, particularly those from the South, was openly hostile and sometimes extremely violent towards people of colour, and a number of incidents had already occurred in various towns across England. While racism and the imposition of colour bars were not uncommon in wartime Britain, it is probably fair to say that they were not the norm. In many places, black American and Commonwealth servicemen had been welcomed and treated with courtesy. On the whole, they were welcomed in pubs and dance halls. This had not gone down well with the American authorities, who had pressured the British to formally introduce segregation, something which, to their credit, the latter resisted. In some instances, the British public rejected American calls for segregation directly. About 20 miles along the railway line from Nelson, the town of Bamber Bridge was home to a segregated black service unit, the US 1511th Quartermaster Truck Regiment. The soldiers were popular with the townspeople and could often be seen mingling in the town's three pubs. When the US Army requested a colour bar be put in place, the pubs responded by putting up black troops only signs. Just a few weeks before Leary went to the Imperial Hotel, events in Bamber Bridge spiralled out of control when white American MPs attempted to unilaterally enforce the pub ban. An all-night gun battle ensued between black and white troops in which one man was killed and seven wounded. Although 32 men were subsequently convicted of mutiny, their sentences were reduced when evidence from the soldiers and local people made it clear that racism from the 1511th's white officers and MPs lay at the root of the problem. It was not unknown for enraged white GIs to beat and even shoot blacks seen to be too familiar with British women. The American general in charge of the 8th Air Force, of which the 1511th were part, estimated that 9 out of 10 instances of racial violence between troops were instigated by whites. In an attempt to explain the standards expected in England, the British War Office and the Ministry of Information made a short film starring Burgess Meredith, which was to be shown to all new US arrivals. Well, goodbye, ma'am. Goodbye. It's been very nice meeting you both. Glad to have met you, I'm sure. Funny you should come from Birmingham, too, isn't it? Have you come to my Birmingham? You've come to my home and have a cup of tea with me, both of you. Thank you, we will. Goodbye and good luck. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, where are you going? Well, I think I'll get some cigarettes. I'm sure, too. Well, I'll get some. Good. Now, look, men, you heard that conversation. That's not unusual here. It's the sort of thing that happens quite a lot. Now, let's be frank about it. There are colored soldiers as well as white here, and there are less social restrictions in this country. Just what you heard, an English woman asking a colored boy to tea. She was polite about it, and he was polite about it. Now, look, that might not happen at home, but the, the point is, we're not at home. And the point is, too, if we bring a lot of prejudices here, what are we going to do about them? Good evening, gentlemen. Say, so, do you know who that is? That's General Lee, head of the services of supplies. You know that he's got a lot of colored troops under him and they're doing a big job over here. And I happen to know that General Lee comes from Kansas and that his family fought for the Confederacy. Let's go and see what he says about it. And so we were wondering how the general felt about him and me, sir. America has promised the Negro real citizenship and a fair chance to make the best of himself. When the army needs Americans to fight for the country, it takes Negroes along with whites. 
everyone's treated the same when it comes to dying. And so the army wouldn't be true to America if it didn't try to live up to the promises about an equal chance. You mean that we have to get over our prejudices? You don't get over a prejudice that easily. There's no use pretending we're different from what we are. But we can try to live up to our American promises. I'd go further and say, we can't do less and still feel ourselves patriots. We have promised to respect each other, all of us. That's one of the reasons that makes our world worth fighting for. But you're all together in this small country with the same surroundings, the same amount of pay to spend, and the same sort of places to spend it. And we're all here as soldiers. Everything we do, we do as American soldiers. Not Negroes and white men, rich or poor, but as American soldiers. It's not a bad time, is it, to learn to respect each other both ways. The American officers ensconced at the Imperial Hotel apparently hadn't heard the message that things were different in Britain, and the manageress of the hotel was only too pleased to comply with their request that the Constantines be removed. No sooner had Leary checked in and gone up to his room when he was summoned back down to reception and told that his family could stay for one night only, after which their luggage would be placed outside and the doors locked. The manageress stated that this was to avoid upsetting the Americans, although as she repeatedly referred to Leary and his family as niggers during the exchange, it might be reasonably assumed that she was profoundly racist anyway. Leary and his family were sent around the corner to the Bedford Hotel, a sister hotel to the Imperial, at which no Americans were resident. It wasn't the first time that Leary had faced prejudice from Americans. As early as 1929, when visiting New York to play cricket, he had been interrupted whilst at prayer and ordered to the back of a church because of his colour. Then, earlier in the war, there had been an incident at a dance hall where an American airman had aggressively approached him and told him he wasn't allowed to mix with white folk. When the airman ignored Constantine's request to leave him alone and further racially abused him, Leary asked him to step outside. The airman followed, no doubt anticipating giving him a thrashing, only to be promptly handed over to the bouncers and ejected. Had he been alone at the Imperial Hotel, he might well have written it off as a bad experience and quietly gone to the Bedford. But he was with his wife and daughter, and acutely aware of the distress the incident had caused them. Consequently, he launched legal proceedings against the hotel for breach of contract. It took a further year to come to court, but the judgment was in his favour. Although the hotel would have been within their rights to refuse a booking in the first place on the basis of colour, it was deemed to be illegal to subsequently break a contract on these grounds. The case prompted much press coverage and questions in Parliament, with the government making it known that they backed Constantine's stance. It was to be over two decades before the Race Relations Act passed into law, but Leary's victory was an important milestone along the way. There was another important milestone for Leary in August 1945, when he played for the Dominions against England in a first-class match celebrating the end of the war. This was to be Leary's final first-class game, and Plum Warner, who had selected the Dominions eleven, appointed him captain. 
It was a great honour, and one with which his fellow players were in full agreement, but Constantine would have viewed it as a bittersweet moment. He was no doubt touched at the accolade, but it would have stung that while he could skipper a team otherwise composed of white Australians, New Zealanders and South Africans, he was still effectively banned from leading the West Indies, even though for many years he had been the most obvious choice for the job. The match at Lords proved the fine swan song to his first-class career. Looking at the scorecard alone, Leary's contribution looks less impressive than in many of his previous matches. But bare statistics only tell half the story. It is true that it was neither his greatest performance with bat or ball, but he did at one stage manage a spectacular run out from the field, and his performance as the junior partner in a 123-run stand with the Australian test player Keith Miller was crucial. Overall, it was a well-matched game, which kept the crowd in their seats right until the end of the allotted three days. The Dominions batted first, scoring 307 of 103 overs, with the New Zealander Martin Donnelly scoring 133. Donnelly was an interesting example of a player who probably lost the best years of his career to the war. He had made his test debut for the Kiwis at the age of 19 in 1937. He served in the New Zealand Army as a tank commander in North Africa and Italy before going on to read history at Oxford after the war, during which time he played rugby union for England, before making a couple of further appearances for New Zealand as a cricketer. After Oxford he played for Warwickshire, during which time he was the subject of one of cricket's most unusual dismissals. A delivery from Middlesex spinner Jack Young hit his boot and ricocheted over his head, landing behind the stumps but with so much spin on it that it came back and hit the wicket from behind. England replied to the Dominion's first innings total with 287, including 121 from Captain Wally Hammond. In the second innings, the Dominions posted 336, which included 40 from Leary himself and Miller's 185. Wally Hammond scored a century for England again in their second innings, and the final afternoon could have gone either way. As the clock ticked down towards the end of the day's play, a draw was looking increasingly likely. When England were bowled out eight minutes short of the close and 45 runs short of victory, Leary had won the day. In the immediate aftermath of the war, Constantine threw himself into his studies in order to qualify as a lawyer. He also returned to Windhill Cricket Club for a further three seasons, as well as accepting temporary coaching assignments in Ireland and Ceylon. He also began to pick up work as a cricket commentator and journalist with the BBC and Reuters. And as if all that wasn't enough to keep him busy, he also wrote several more books. The first, Cricket in the Sun, was published in 1947 and revisited some of the themes of the now 14-year-old Cricket and I. It was a wide-ranging and engaging account of his career in cricket, but unlike many cricketing memoirs, didn't merely confine itself to wistful recollections of past glories. Leary used the book to flag up that not everything was rosy in the cricketing garden, 
he alluded to racism, both past and present, in the cricketing establishment. Not only was there the vexed issue of the West Indies captaincy, but it transpired that black players were routinely excluded from post-match receptions for their own home test matches. This exclusion, always offensive, had become particularly ridiculous from the late 1930s onwards, when the captain was frequently the only white member of a West Indies eleven, and thus their sole representative at the festivities. They have some in Port of the fact that the West Indies black players were treated as equals by their hosts on a tour in England or Australia, but as inferiors by their own federation at home, may seem odd. But it fits into a common pattern throughout the history of colonial cricket. Leary wrote that he encountered far less racism playing cricket in England than in the West Indies, and this mirrors the experience of those like the Australian Aborigines and Parsees in the Victorian era. Additionally, he didn't hold back with his thoughts on what was wrong with top-level cricket. He was scornful of traditionalist administrators and timid play. He advocated attacking batting, made the case for short-pitch bowling, and reiterated the importance of paying attention to fielding. He also made suggestions for how cricket might be improved to present a more compelling spectacle for audiences. These included penalties for slow play, the introduction of extra umpires and an international one-day championship. All innovations which were dismissed as fantasy at the time but which are familiar characteristics of the sport today. By 1949, Leary had entered onto the next leg of his long slog towards qualifying as a barrister and was having to regularly travel to the Inns of Court in order to attend tutorials. He was also in frequent demand to speak on BBC Radio on a wide range of topics, and so it made sense after 20 years to finally leave Nelson and move to London, where his daughter Gloria was also training as a teacher. In London, he soon became embroiled in the case of Suretsi Karma, the king of Bechuanaland, who had met and married an Englishwoman while a law student in London. Suretsi's uncle, acting as regent in his absence, attempted to have him disbarred from the succession as a result, and a political crisis ensued. This might have been an internal matter for Bechuanaland had it not been a British protectorate. Not only that, but in practical terms, access to and from the country was largely via South Africa still at that time a Commonwealth country, but deeply committed to the doctrine of apartheid. The South Africans would not tolerate a king in a mixed marriage on their doorstep, and they piled pressure onto the British government in support of the king's uncle Teshkedi. The British, meanwhile, fearful of losing access to South African minerals, particularly the uranium they needed for their nuclear ambitions, decided that the safest course of action was to send both men into exile. Leary, Seeing this as yet another example of institutional racism was outraged. He was particularly disappointed because there was now a Labour government in power, and he expected better from them. Over the years he had been closely associated with the Labour movement, although never a member, and he had formed a close working relationship with Ernest Bevin during the war. However, he found Clement Attlee less amenable and felt that he gave off an air of white superiority. Leary, for his part, became chair of the Suretsi Karma Fighting Committee and used all of his contracts and charm to lobby on his behalf. But it was to no avail. Suretsi was forced to renounce the throne, although he was allowed to return home in 1956. Still immensely popular, he eventually became head of state anyway, but as the first president, then Bechuanaland achieved independence and became Botswana. 
Leary finally qualified as a barrister in 1954. Now aged 53, he decided the time was ripe to return to Trinidad. He was offered a legal job by Trinidad Leaseholds, the same company that he'd left in 1928, to come to England, now a subsidiary of the vast Texaco Oil Corporation. His daughter Gloria was also moving to Port of Spain, having married a Trinidadian lawyer she had met in London. Leary might have been forgiven for thinking that he was returning home for a quiet life in the sun. It was not to be. As he left, he also published another book. This time it hardly mentioned cricket at all. Colour Bar was a scathing assessment of racism at home and abroad. It included a catalogue of much of what was wrong with the empire and came as a shock to many readers, used as they were to a rose-tinted view of a benign and happy commonwealth populated by native peoples happily enjoying the benefits of British rule. Though much of the language is dated today, it is still a powerful testimony and one which those who hark back to Britain's imperial past as a template for our future role in the world would do well to consider. Constantine dealt with his subject calmly and rationally, and was careful to espouse cooperation and non-violence as the answer to racial problems. But he also left the reader in no doubt that many parts of the empire were a powder keg that was dangerously close to exploding. His assessment of race relations in the United Kingdom was scarcely better. Granted, he said it was not as bad as South Africa or the USA, but black people were routinely given less pay and poorer accommodation, and although Leary acknowledged that he had many white friends, he was of the opinion that the average white person would routinely ostracise black neighbours or work colleagues. Colour Bar was not without its faults. Constantine correctly identified that class problems, ignorance and lack of education and opportunity often lay at the root of racial prejudice. But he was sometimes naive in his conclusions, as in his assertion that because the Soviet Union had eradicated class differences, it had also eradicated racism. Sadly, this ignored both the Russification of the USSR's many ethnic minorities and the anti-Semitism that has periodically engulfed the country. Not surprisingly, the book split opinion in the UK, with the split being broadly along left-right lines, with some conservatives even accusing Leary of being a communist agitator. Starting his new post in Trinidad at the beginning of 1955, Leary found the country greatly changed since he left. Since 1945, the vote for the Legislative Assembly had been extended to all citizens, and although still a British colony, independence was now a tangible aim rather than a distant dream. A new political party, the People's National Movement, had formed shortly after Leary's arrival, led by the historian Dr Eric Williams. Like Constantine, Williams had spent the 1930s in England, although in his case as an Oxford scholar. The two were previously acquainted, as Williams had sometimes been a guest at Nelson during his college vacations. Indeed, many of the key members of the new party were known to Leary, as they had studied in England, where the Trinidadian community was small enough to ensure introductions were always made. The new party elected Leary as their chairman, and a few months later he was nominated as their candidate for CLR's old hometown of Tunapuna in the 1956 elections. In a very close contest, largely split on racial lines between black and Indian voters, Leary found himself elected to the Trinidadian Legislative Council 
as a member of the new governing party. Eric Williams was now the Chief Minister of Trinidad and he needed to appoint a cabinet. With eight posts to fill and only 13 members of his party to choose from, Leary's previous experience as a senior British civil servant and his high public profile made him an obvious choice. He was duly appointed as Minister for Communications, Works and Public Utilities. His brief was to demonstrate that Trinidadians could do a better job of organising, building and running the island's infrastructure than the British could and he was given control of approximately half the colony's budget to do it. He proved himself an able administrator and made impressive strides in improving the country's road network, port infrastructure and ferry routes. However, it was inevitable that his control of such a large part of the national budget would attract criticism from political opponents. The opposition alleged that Leary had mishandled the replacement of a ferry service between Trinidad and Tobago and implied that corruption might be involved. It was a suggestion to which Leary did not react kindly. He was a man of impeccable honesty and high morals, but he was not possessed of the thick skin required for high political office. Unfortunately, his rebuttal in the council, during which he listed his many achievements on behalf of the island abroad, was seized upon by his opponents to portray him as high-handed and out of touch. Henceforth, they constantly niggled him and undermined his image with the electorate by referring to him as the Englishman. Cricket, lovely cricket. At, last I saw it. Cricket, lovely cricket. At the same time, Leary was still campaigning on the thorny issue of the West Indies captaincy. In 1958, CLR James had returned to Trinidad and taken up editorship of The Nation, the PNM's newspaper. One of the paper's constant themes was a campaign to have the great Barbadian batsman Frank Worrell appointed as captain. A generation younger than Constantine, Worrell had much in common with him. He too had played league cricket in Lancashire and had studied economics at Manchester University. Like Leary, he had well-articulated and strong views on the politics of race, for which he was widely known as the cricketing Bolshevik. At long last, almost on the eve of independence, the pressure they applied finally bore fruit, and Worrell was given the captaincy for the West Indies tour of Australia in the winter of 1961-2. By that time, Leary's return to Trinidad was coming to a close. He had been involved in negotiations with the British to set up an independent West Indies federation but the proposals collapsed on the inability of the various colonies to agree on their relative importance within the new setup. More suited to quiet diplomacy than the cut and thrust of party politics, Leary had not sought re-election at the end of 1961. He was therefore available for ambassadorial duties and had been appointed as Trinidad and Tobago's High Commissioner to London in mid-1961, in anticipation of independence the following year. His subsequent knighthood was announced in the New Year's Honours list for 1962 and he arrived in London in the spring as part of a delegation to agree terms for Trinidad and Tobago's independence. Events now moved with remarkable speed, with the new state coming into existence at the end of August. On the whole, Leary was very well suited to the role of High Commissioner. As a Trinidadian who had been a long-term and very well-connected resident of the UK, he was well-placed to act as a conduit between the two nations. 
Eric Williams wanted him to primarily focus on attracting British investment and tourism to the islands. But Leary soon found himself drawn into supporting the growing number of islanders who form part of the Windrush generation. This wasn't at all surprising. He had a deep affinity and affection for his countrymen, and acting in a pastoral capacity played to his strengths from his welfare office days. Unfortunately, he was perhaps a little too enthusiastic about that side to his role, and a little unclear about the boundaries of his remit. In 1963, he was drawn into a dispute involving the Bristol Omnibus Company. Across Britain, West Indian immigrants were increasingly common as bus drivers and conductors. But in Bristol, there was a colour bar, with applications from non-whites being rejected out of hand. The story was picked up by the local newspapers and Tony Benn, who was local Labour MP. And before long, the bus company found itself the subject of protests, boycotts and pickets. Given his strong feelings about racial injustice, it was hardly a surprise that Leary became involved. In his short career as a barrister, he had already been involved in a number of cases involving discrimination, and he felt that he might be able to help resolve the matter. As it happened, he was in Bristol anyway to see the current crop of West Indies tourists play Gloucestershire, and he took the opportunity to hold talks with the Mayor of Bristol and give a statement to the Bristol Press in which he condemned the bus company and pointed out that their attitude was inconsistent as their sister company a few miles down the road in Bath quite happily employed black staff. Following on from this, he was also interviewed by the BBC for the National News and had talks with Frank Cousins, the leader of the Transport and General Workers Union, to enlist his help. All of this raised the profile of the case to a much higher level and the bus company quickly moved to change their recruitment policy and started hiring regardless of race. It seemed like a victory for Leary. Not only had it removed the discriminatory practice in Bristol, it had highlighted that such policies were still commonplace. Tony Benn, then an up-and-coming young politician, was able to persuade Labour leader Harold Wilson of the need to legislate on the issue and when they were elected to power the following year, they set the wheels in motion for the Race Relations Act. However, diplomatically speaking, Leary had severely blotted his copybook. By making a public stand on the issue rather than confining himself to a few quiet words behind the scenes, he had been seen to interfere in the domestic politics of another country. To make matters worse, the employees directly cited in the case, Guy Bailey and Norris Edwards, weren't even Trinidadian. They were both Jamaican. Think I never see you when you jump over the wall. You think I never see you when you accidentally fall me. It is easy to see why Leary acted as he did. First and foremost, he saw an injustice and he acted to correct it. Secondly, he didn't see himself as interfering in a foreign country. England had been his home for half his life. Thirdly, having long been a member of a United West Indies team and having initially expected independence to come to a United West Indies federation rather than a string of individual island states, he regarded all West Indians as his compatriots. From his standpoint, he was acting logically. Later on, he was to use the analogy of a gang of racists attacking a black man on a London street. They're kicking the man because he's black, he said. They don't care whether he's from St Lucia, Barbados or Jamaica. Why should we care about which island he's from when we see he needs help? Back in Port of Spain, Eric Williams saw it somewhat differently. Anxious to make sure that Trinidad and Tobago was seen as a credible independent state, he needed his diplomats to stick to the rules and only act in their own citizens' interests. 
Realising that he may have overstepped the mark, Leary then returned to Trinidad to talk to Williams, but was refused an audience and received a further reprimand for leaving his post without permission. A permanent and never-to-be-healed breach opened between the former friends, and Constantine stepped down the following year. They never spoke again. England swings like a pendulum do Bobby's on bicycles two by two Westminster Abbey, the Tower of Big Ben The rosy red cheeks of the little children Leary lived the remaining few years of his life in London. Having been a foreign diplomat for a couple of years, he was now transformed into a British national treasure. He returned to practising law along with regular broadcasting for the BBC and a string of public appointments came his way as the 1960s continued and the new Labour government set up new bodies to implement its policies. In 1964 he was invited to join the BBC's General Advisory Committee. In 1965 he was appointed to the Sports Council, a body dedicated to increasing both the levels of participation and the standards of performance in British sport. Two years later, he was also appointed to the newly created Race Relations Board. And finally, in 1968, he was elevated to the BBC's Board of Governors. In 1968, he was even approached by Liberal leader Jeremy Thorpe to stand as a candidate in the Nelson by-election. In fact, this was the second time the Liberals had offered him the chance to stand for Parliament, having tried to persuade him to stand for the West Yorkshire seat of Shipley in the 1950 general election. On both occasions, he turned them down. In 1950, the time hadn't been right and he was concentrating on qualifying as a lawyer. By 1968, his health was in decline, but he had also been a close personal friend of Sidney Silverman, the Labour MP whose death precipitated the by-election for 30 years, and he felt it was disloyal to his memory to stand against his party. The previous year he had already won an election when he was appointed Rector of St Andrews, Scotland's oldest and most prestigious university, seeing off former Liberal leader Joe Grimmond and Sean Connery in the process. Leary finally made it to Parliament in 1969 when it was announced in the New Year's Honours that he was to be elevated to the peerage as Britain's first black lord. Reflecting the two places closest to his heart, he took the title Lord Constantine of Marivelle in Trinidad and Nelson in the County Palatine of Lancaster. He chose to sit on the cross benches, reflecting his lifelong position somewhere between the Liberal and Labour parties. His late-life achievements in reaching these positions of power and authority were remarkable and would have been inconceivable for a black West Indian when he was a boy on the cocoa plantation. As a sportsman, he had captured the hearts of spectators around the world, particularly in his adopted home of Lancashire. But he had also worked tirelessly to use the platform his sporting prowess accorded him to advance the cause of his fellow West Indians. Sadly, having at last gained access to positions where he could begin to exert real influence for change, he was defeated by his health. His final few years were characterised by serious bronchial infections and increasingly common and lengthy bouts of illness. Unable to always attend to his duties as a university rector, BBC governor and member of the Lords, he attracted criticism from some quarters, perhaps unaware of just how bad his health was. 
that having grasped positions of influence, he did little with them. He was even described in some quarters as an Uncle Tom or a coconut, black on the outside but part of the white establishment inside. Such criticisms were unfair. There seems little evidence that Leary was less committed to the cause of equality as he grew older. He simply wasn't well enough to carry on at the relentless pace he had kept up for his entire adult life. A lifetime of living in a coal-fired industrial environment at a time when almost everybody smoked, combined with the damp Lancashire climate, had taken a toll on his lungs. It was suggested that it would be best for his health if he retired to the Caribbean and avoided facing another English winter. In June 1971, he publicly announced that he would shortly be permanently moving to Trinidad, and on the 6th of July, he did indeed leave. But it was a posthumous departure. He'd already died peacefully in his sleep on the 1st of July, and now his body was returned to the land of his birth for a state funeral. It was certainly the grandest funeral the country had ever seen. Conducted by the Archbishop and attended by the Prime Minister, Thousands of mourners lined the route from the airport and filed past the coffin as it lay in state at the cathedral. After the service, the national anthem played as the body was carried outside and the army fired a 19-gun salute. Thousands more lined the 10-mile route from the cathedral to the Constantine family plot at Aruka. Today, Leary Constantine is largely forgotten by all but a small core of cricket fans. The numbers who saw him play at the height of his powers are dwindling, and even those who only remember him as a journalist and commentator are old. Soon he will fade from living memory altogether. But his legacy is immense and many-faceted. Certainly he was an inspirational role model for both West Indian cricketers and people from the Caribbean who aspired to better life generally. His importance as one of the key figures in the 20th century social history of Britain is beyond question. He was not the only West Indian cricketer in the professional leagues of the north of England, or even the first, but he did more than most to demonstrate that race should neither disbar one from being taken seriously, either as a cricketer or a man. Finally, his impact as a cricketer cannot be overstated. Cricket today is experiencing something of a popular renaissance precisely because it has embraced many of the aspects of the game he favoured. Exciting, open and attacking play were the hallmarks of Leary's cricket. He would have loved the speed and spectacle of formats like T20 and would have been ideally suited to the stage of the Cricket World Cup and Indian Premier League. It took a long time to budge the controlling bodies of top-level cricket away from hidebound Victorian values, but in many respects it was Leary's influence that got the ball rolling. Long may it roll. I have a tale to relate, it concerns the pride of this land. Events we should celebrate in the whole of the Caribbean. This thing is no mystery, something to excite we. Rewriting of history by one special man. Leary Constantine was a great all-rounder from Trinidad. One of the finest cricketers the West Indies ever had. He led them to their first Test match victory. It was so grand, beating England, the mother country. This man took a West End hotel to court for breach of contract. For refusing him in entrance just because his skin was black. His book, Calabar, described the deep racism which he had experienced in the British system. After that, a journalist was studying law. 
Everyone in TNT say from way back. 